Hey, happy Mother's Day. Um, it's fine, it's fine. Um, you too? Did someone say you too? Okay, well, um, that is confusing at best. Um, uh, listen, by a show of hands, how many of you have seen that video before? One, two, three, show your hands. Good, good. We're going to show it every week until we get the requisite amount of volunteers in our children's ministry. Let's just run through the numbers real quick, shall we? Over the last uh, year, our children's ministry has grown by 80%. About uh, this time last year, we would have had about 100 children in our children's ministry. Now, at this time, we have 180 plus on a regular basis. It takes two times the volunteers now as it did last year at this time to run our children's ministry. We need about a hundred volunteers on any given Sunday morning to serve our children and to invest in the next generation of God's church. Right now we average about 45. We need 100, we average 45. We need 100, we average 45. Are we doing the math? And the math equates to six times in the last six weeks we've had to close rooms down in our children's ministry because we didn't have the requisite uh, ratio of staff and volunteers to children. Uh, And we will not, absolutely will not compromise the safety and security of our kids. And so So we need people to step into these areas of service and to be totally honest with you, you need to step into this area of service because it's a way in which God grows you to be more like his son who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even those with graham crackers stuck all over their hands. So we have streamlined this process. We've made it a lot easier to uh, sign up and register and serve and volunteer in our children's ministry. You still have to pass a police check. So if you can't do that, don't bother. And we will make it really easy for you to get involved right away, provide the training that you need. And so here's what I need you to do right after the service today, out those doors to the left or to the right. And on the left-hand side, you'll see some doors that enter into the Bayview Kids Wing. You'll see Andy Notice or Notice, whatever his last name is. Um, Uh, serving at the children's ministry desk just inside those doors and he will help you plug into the children's ministry. Okay, sound good? All right, good, let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to serve you today and to listen to you today and to make much of your son Jesus today. Uh, Thank you for uh, this time that we have to set aside to worship you and hear from you and we ask you now to speak to us, provide comfort, encouragement, exhortation, conviction, whatever it is that we need to hear from you, ask that you would provide it here and now. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. Well, last week we finished a series called All Things New, and today we are back into our study in the book of John. It's called Believe. The reason we call it Believe is because John's goal is that we would believe, place our active trust in Jesus as the Christ and by and the Son of God, and by believing we would have life in his name. And where we'll be today is at the end of John chapter 4, right about verse 46, I think is where we'll pick it up. Up because we've already covered chapters one through the most of uh, chapter four. And before we get to the verse that we're going to cover today and the, the pericope or the, or the paragraph that we're going to cover today, I want to do a little review because some of you maybe are brand new with us and not. How you doing, Otis? You good? Thanks. Everybody say hi to Otis. Yeah, see you, buddy. <laughs> So we're going to do a review because some of you may be new with us uh, and some of you just remember where we've come from. And so here's what's happened 
Over the course of the book of John, John was one of Jesus' best friends. He was about 16 or 17 years old when he began to follow Jesus. And he walked very, very closely with Jesus. Actually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were very, very tight friends. And by the time that John got into about his 80s or 90s, he thought to himself, self, I should probably write this stuff down for posterity because I walked around with Jesus and was his friend for years, several years. I, I need to write this stuff down so that people will know about Jesus. And so he begins to write his gospel. And here's what he's covered so far in his biography of the life of Jesus. He's talked to us about Jesus as the word, God's message become flesh. The living, breathing message of God, pre-existent, God incarnate, in pre-existent in eternity past, God became flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus calls disciples to himself. John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin and not the John that writes the gospel, opens a door for Jesus, rolls out the red carpet for Jesus, begins to kind of pave the way for Jesus. In John chapter two, Jesus does his first miracle. He's at a wedding in a city called Cana and they run out of wine. So Jesus makes water into wine and pretty much does it just because his mom asks him to do it. Happy Mother's Day. Some of you are, are only here because your mom asked you to be. So you're, you know, you're a lot like Jesus in that way. You know, you're here because your mom asked you to be here. He made wine out of water because his mom asked him to do it. In John chapter three, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader, very, very strict, very, very legalistic man, and says, look, in order to know God and, and, and to... Uh, and to connect with God, you have to be reborn. You've already been born once physically. Now you've got to be born spiritually. And then in John chapter four, Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well who just so happened to be Samaritan. Do you remember that one? Samaritan woman. Remember that one? Okay. So here's what I did. From John chapter one, verse one, I read all the way through one, two, three, and most of four uh, before we got to this passage today. And, and here's what I found. And, and I think it's, it's helpful for us uh, this morning, even as we kind of dive into this text, is that uh, it's not so much what John records that's fascinating to me. Although it, it has been fascinating to me, is fascinating to me, I get that. It's the stuff that's missing in John chapters one, two, three, and most of four that I find intriguing or that I at least found intriguing this last time through as I read it. What I found is that there is really only one miracle that we've talked about so far in the book of John. Did you realize that? It's water into wine. That's the one miracle that Jesus has done. In John chapter four, you may say that it was a miracle that he knew that this woman had five husbands before and she's living with a guy now that was not her husband, but he could have known that just by overhearing a conversation. Likely didn't, but that's not necessarily a miracle. A miracle of changing water into wine is a big miracle. So what John has told us so far is you need to place your active trust in Jesus, not necessarily because of what he's done, but because of who he is. Isn't that interesting? He's talked to us about his character. He's talked to us about his grace. He's talked to us about his gentleness and his strength under control. He's talked to us about the ways that he can talk to anybody from a Samaritan woman to a religious leader. He talked about the ways in which he has a great time at a wedding. He talked to us about calling disciples. He talked to us, he's talked to us about his cousin paving the way for him. 
He's talked about all these other things and he's only talked about one miracle. And even that miracle, the point of recording that was not to tell us that Jesus does really cool magic tricks, but to tell us that Jesus is great because he responds to his mom who asks him to do this. And number two, he kind of dis, uh, um, deconstructs the religious establishment and, and butts up against the religious establishment that was oppressive for people. See, here's where I want to start this morning, just kind of by way of review, is, is just simply by saying this, that there's no one like Jesus. I mean, there's simply no one like him. And it's not so much about what he's done, it's about who he is. And I would say that's the same uh, today, even in your own life. It's not so much about what he's done for you, but about who he is. God incarnate. Gentle, kind, gracious, and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We had a guy come to Christ here, uh, repent and believe, become a Christian last year at Bayview Glen Church. I won't mention his name or the country he's from, just for his sake and, and for his safety, but in the country he's from, if you were to claim the name of Christ, you would get killed for your faith. And I said, what has compelled you? What has compelled you to give your life to Christ knowing that that was the risk that you ran? And he didn't say it was because Jesus did cool magic tricks or maybe he'll take five loaves and two fish and he'll do the same for me or I've run out of wine, but I've got plenty of water. So I'd like him to, that's not, he didn't say any of that. He said, he's the most gentle and gracious man I have ever read about. It's, I am just blown away, not by what he's done, but, but about but I'm blown away by who he is. And even as we get into the passage today in John chapter four, this is really what John continues to communicate to us. It's not so much about what Jesus has done, but about who he is. So let's get into the passage together. John chapter four. John chapter four. If you've got your Bibles, open them up, please. You can use your iPad, your iPhone. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with a neighbor. And we'll be at the end of John chapter four, verse 46. Remember, Jesus has just had a conversation with this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And now he begins to travel north uh, from Judea through Samaria and into Galilee, the province in the north. And we pick it up in verse 46. It says, after the two days, that's the two days he spent at Sychar in Samaria. Samaria, he departed for Galilee, so he's traveling north, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, that's the Passover, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine, so he's back to Canaan now, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did, the first being water into wine, when he had come from Judea 
to Galilee. So let's review the story here, shall we? Jesus is in Cana at Galilee. He's traveled up from Samaria and an official comes to him from Capernaum and says, look, my son is sick. And not just like he's got a little cough, he's got a little runny nose sick. My son's on his deathbed sick. Would you please come heal my son? Jesus makes this cryptic statement in response. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The guy says, look, I need you to come. And he actually begs him to come. Jesus says, you know what? I don't need to do that. You just go and your son will be healed. So the man travels back to Capernaum and on his way, his servants come to him and they say, hey, your son is still living. And he says, at what point did he begin to get better? Yesterday, about one o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, that's when I spoke to this Jesus guy. And subsequently, consequently, this official believes, places his active trust in Jesus because of what Jesus had done. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to really tackle three things. First is I want to tackle a difficulty that's in the text here. There's a textual difficulty that you might not have recognized, you may have recognized, and I want to point it out to it, point it out to you and resolve it for you. And the reason why is because you might read some people or talk to some friends of yours that would say, see, the Bible isn't credible because they've got these contradictions in the text. Here's one of them in John chapter four. It might seem insignificant to you, but for a lot of literary, Uh, uh, liberal scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, they would say, see, the Bible isn't credible because of difficulties like this. And this is one of the things they would use for evidence. So I want to resolve it for you. The second thing I want to talk about is this official. He's fascinating to me and we can learn a lot from him. And finally, I want to talk about Jesus because we always talk about Jesus. I want to talk about his posture and his grace and the kindness that he extends to this man and what his end goal is even for this official. So if you've got your Bibles, take a look, and and I want to show you this difficulty in the text. It's also up here on the screen. John writes this. It says, after the two days, that's in Sychar in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So Jesus is headed north into the province of Galilee. The Galilee is his home province. And he's saying a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So how would you expect the folks in Galilee to respond to Jesus when he gets there? If he's not going to have any honor there, how would you expect them to respond? Disrespectfully, right? Not honor him. But watch what happens. It says when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. The Galileans welcomed him. Well, if he has no honor in his hometown, why is it that they welcomed him? And I'm not kidding. Scholars, liberal scholars would point out, see, Jesus says, he prophesies that they're not gonna welcome me, that they're gonna treat me disrespectfully, but then they welcomed him. See, contradictions in the text. Jesus isn't credible. The Bible isn't credible. So what they miss here is a couple things. One is this word hometown, and this is a critical word here. So go to the next slide, thanks. This word hometown, it does not mean home country. It does not mean home province. It means hometown. And what was Jesus' hometown? Nazareth, Nazareth, which was in Galilee, but Galilee is his home province. Nazareth is his hometown. So here he goes to Galilee and the Galileans, not the Nazarenes, the Galileans welcomed him. So what city was he in when he was welcomed? Well, he was in Cana in Galilee. And why would they welcome him at Cana in Galilee? Well, because there he had turned water into wine. They'd welcome you too if you could do that. 
like Jesus is back, let's go to Longo's and buy all the water, right? Like, you know, that's, I've run out of wine, let's just get it to him as fast as we can. So I want you to look up here on the screen because here's what's happening. Jesus has traveled from, Gal- or from Judea through Samaria in the south. He's traveled through Nazareth, his hometown, where he receives no honor. Now, Nazareth is in Galilee because all of this is the province of Galilee. And then he travels to Cana where he is welcomed. He, is, he receives no honor in Nazareth and he is welcomed by the Galileans because they are Galileans just like you are all Ontarians. Is that, is that it? Is it Ontarians? Ont- Ontarionians? Is that right? You know what I mean. So he's welcomed by the Galileans here in Cana, even though he receives no honor in Nazareth. Does everyone understand how we just resolved the difficulty in the text? Good. You can share that with your friends. All right? So let's keep going. What happens in Cana? He comes to Cana where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. I love the official. I really do. This guy is absolutely fascinating to me. The first reason why he's fascinating to me is he, he makes a request of Jesus and Jesus responds. Like, how do you do that? You go to God in prayer, even now, and he responds. Or he goes to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not gonna believe. And he says, look, just come heal my kid. And Jesus goes, I don't even need to go there. You just go back and he's done. It's over, it's done. He's healed, got it. I don't know about you, but I've got people in my life who seem to have a direct line to God. Have you ever known that? Have you ever known somebody like that? For me, this is Mother's Day, I know, but really it is my mom. It's like, my mom knows stuff. She has a direct line to God, I swear to you. And not like in a creepy way, you know, not like in a, not like in a weird, strange, like you're wearing you know, camel hair and eating locusts kind of way. Like she has, I feel like she has a direct line to God. So here's my question of the official. This official makes a request of Jesus, goes to Jesus and Jesus responds. I would love to know the ways in which I need to posture my heart and make a request of God that he's gonna respond to. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? How do I get a direct line to God? See, the official is gonna tell us how to do that. The one thing that I know about the official that is not the reason that he has a direct line to God is that he's not perfect. He's not perfect. He doesn't have a direct line to God because he's perfect. And the reason why I know that is because in the original Greek language, when uh, the Bible says that this man was an official, it means he was a military official in the army of King Herod or Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod's father was Herod the Great, the one that ordered the execution of all the babies under two when Jesus was a kid. Okay, and then Herod Antipas, who we've talked about in the past, was a strange and like like really warped and really destructive and really monstrous man. In fact, Herod Antipas married his like half-brother's daughter. Isn't that icky? And then he, 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 was, he killed people all the time. Like he was just a monstrous ruler of a man, like chopping off branches on his family tree, which is what they do in Arkansas. Like he was just doing this stuff. Like he was really a warped, warped man. In fact, he's the one that had John the Baptist executed, if you remember us talking about grieving Jesus. And if you fast forward in the life of Christ, when Jesus went on trial before Pontius Pilate, he eventually went to trial 
trial uh, with a government ruler and then back to Pontius Pilate. That government ruler was Herod Antipas. He was a nasty, nasty man. And so anybody who was an official in Herod Antipas's army was not a nice guy either. This guy was corrupt. He was violent. He was not the kind of man that you would want to reckon with. He's not the kind of guy that if he knocked on your door and you looked through the peephole and you would go, oh my gosh, it's an official. Let's open the door. Like this was not a perfect man, far from it. And yet he comes to Jesus and Jesus responds. So let's grab one point here, shall we? You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. And and let me tell you something. We mess this up all the time. Like people all the time, I invite them to church. You should come to church. You should come to church. Get to know Jesus. Get to know God, whatever. And and, and they're like, you know what? I, I can't come to church because if I step foot in church, lightning is going to strike me. And what I tell them is we have that big cell phone tower outside. It will strike the tower first. It will not strike you. You know, what I tell them actually is, you know what, if you look through all of scripture, you see far from perfect people. David, Moses, Peter, who do not deny Jesus three times. Paul, who initially was Saul, persecuted the church, killed and imprisoned Christians. And yet all of those men and women that we see in scripture that are far from perfect make requests of Jesus and Jesus responds. It's the same thing with the official. And what we learn from the official is you do not have to be perfect to come to Jesus. No matter, this is, for some of you, this is all you need to hear this morning. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, and what's been done to you, come tell me all that stuff. I will superimpose your life over the top, uh, top of a biblical character's life, and I will find hundreds in the scripture that are far worse than you could ever dream to be. And God loved them and listened to them and cared about them just like he does you. You do not have to be perfect to come to Jesus. Just like this official. So what is it that I do have to do is the question. If I don't have to be perfect, what do I have to do? Well, let's learn. He came to Cana in Galilee, that's Jesus, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Jesus is in Cana. This man is in Capernaum. And it says that when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he, that's the man, went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Let's go back to our map and see what's happening here. This is the Sea of Galilee. The man is in Capernaum. Jesus is down here in Cana. And it says that he made the trek from Capernaum all the way to Cana. Came down the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Northeast, southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Western shore of the Sea of Galilee, Ontarians. Western, I get it. Western shore of the Sea of Galilee, all the way over to Cana. This is between 20 and 25 miles, and this journey would have been all uphill because Capernaum was at sea level, and Cana was uphill from Capernaum. And not uphill like your parents told you when they were a kid. They used to walk uphill both ways in the snow. Not that kind of uphill, like really uphill, like a dangerous uphill. And it was a dangerous trek, and he leaves his son at his deathbed, what he thinks is his deathbed, in order to do what? Seek Jesus. Just go after him. Seek him. So you don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus, but you do have to come. Jesus can perfect partial faith, but you do have to come to him with it. Sometimes you've got to take that risk. Sometimes you've got to Engage. Sometimes you've got to take that step of faith 
and go after Jesus and respond to the ways in which Jesus is drawing you. So I got two points of application and then we'll move on. The first is this. If you're wondering where God is in your life, wondering where he's not answering your, why he's not answering your prayers, why you don't feel him, why you're going through a spiritual dry spell, the first question I'm gonna ask you, this is not always, but about 90% of the time, at least in my experience, the answer to this question is pretty telling. I'm going through a spiritual dry spell. Where is God in my life? I don't feel God. My question, how are you seeking him? Are you seeking him in his word? Are you seeking him in prayer? Are you seeking him in worship? Are you seeking him by getting alone? Are you seeking him in quiet? Where are you seeking him? Because if the answer is, well, I'm not really seeking him, then how would you expect to find him? That that makes sense, doesn't it? Good, okay. Here's the second thing I wanna tell you. And most of my points are really, really short. This one's gonna be a long one. And for some of you, it's not gonna make sense and it's not gonna be helpful, but for some of you, it will be extremely constructive as to where you're at right now in your life. Here you go, here's the long point, ready? Sometimes you must surrender what is good and important in order to seek Jesus. I'm gonna say that one more time and then I wanna talk to you about our official. Sometimes you must surrender, put on the shelf, Release control of, relinquish what is good, morally upright and righteous, good and important to you in order to seek Jesus. Now watch this. Parents in the room, how many of you would say that your children, by show of hands, are at least tied for what's most important in your life? Ready? One, two, three. Show me your hands. Good. Good. For some of you, like kids in the room, you're sitting with your parents, they didn't raise your hand. Um, We have counseling available at the church. We can (laughs) get you in to see somebody right away. But here's the thing. Uh, We haven't changed. Humanity hasn't changed in 2,000 years. So here's what this man has got to do. He's got to leave his son's deathbed. I mean, he's probably not a good guy. We've already talked about that. He's, He's not an upright guy, but he's doing something upright, isn't he? He's trying to parent his child. He's doing something morally good, inherently, intrinsically good and righteous, parenting his child, and and it's what's most important to him, especially in Roman culture, especially in early first century uh, Hebrew culture and, 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 and all over the Roman world. Having a son was a really big deal. Having children was a really big deal. It was most important to him. And what did he have to do? He had to walk away from that and surrender it just for a time in order to pursue Jesus so that Jesus could fix what he couldn't. Sometimes you have to surrender what's important and what's good in order to seek Jesus. That's important into your life, into 21st century culture. For some of you, you are doing a really good ministry work for God. Really good, inherently, intrinsically good thing. And it's really, really important to you But over time, it's become a little bit of an idol. Over time, it's not become something that drives you to Jesus, but that drives a wedge in between you and Jesus. For some of you, your commitment to apologetics is really, really good and really, really upright and really, really important to you. For some of you, your commitment to your children is really, really good and really, really upright and really, really important to you. And God goes, that's a really good thing, but they've become an idol and children make really bad gods. 
And so what you've got to do is learn how to release for a time, allow God to control and surrender for a time what is good. I'm not saying that you release morality and you just go live immorally. Everybody understands that, right? You You release what's good. You just put it on the shelf. You surrender it and important to you in order to seek Jesus if it's become a barrier between you and him. I just ticked some of you off, but that's okay. Let's keep reading. Um, The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. In the original language, it's not just saying that this man asked Jesus, but he begged Jesus. He went to Jesus and pleaded with him. So the second thing in terms of pursuing Jesus, just to go ask him. Like the Bible even says, you don't have because you don't ask. So for those of you, again, that are going through a spiritual dry spell or challenges in your life, my question to you would be, are you seeking Jesus to interact with him personally and get to know him on a personal level? But second would be, are you asking him for what you want and what you need? Or, or, or did you just hit a crisis moment in your life and your asking of Jesus went through the roof, but since then it's waned. And you're not going to him on a regular basis and saying, God, I need to know how to be a better parent. God, I need to know how to manage my finances better. God, I need your help to give me courage and wisdom as I'm dealing with this issue at work. Go to him and ask him. It's not about this man's perfection, far from it elicits and, and moves Jesus, elicits a response from Jesus and moves Jesus to respond. It's the fact that this man would seek him out at his own personal expense, likely, and release what's most important and good, most important to him and even good for him in order to go ask Jesus, please come help me. Let's keep reading. It says that the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. That's the request. That's the ask. Jesus said to him, say that word with me, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and what? Went on his way. This is not complicated. Here we go. The man said, or Jesus said, say it with me. The man, Jesus said, and the man And he trusted, he believed, he placed his active trust in Jesus that Jesus would do what he said he would do. And when Jesus said go, he went. And he trusted him so much, he believed, uh, the man believed Jesus so much. Look what happens. It says that he, he was going down, he's going back to Capernaum from Cana, right? His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. This word recovering doesn't mean that he was getting better. It just simply means neutral, he's still alive. In the original language, that's what it means. The servants say, he's still alive. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. What's happening? He assumes that Jesus has done what he promised to do. Do you see it? He's still alive. Well, when did he start to get better? I'm sure these guys are thinking, how'd you know that? Well, because yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's exactly when Jesus told me that he would be healed. What's he doing? He's trusting Jesus, and then he's obeying. He's trusting Jesus, and then he's obeying. And his active trust in Jesus causes him to do what Jesus tells him to do. So for those of you who've been around church for a little while, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to what? Trust and obey. (laughs) Some of us, we have challenges in our spiritual life, and we have challenges even in our relational life. And again, my question is, are you seeking Jesus? Are you asking him for what you need? And are you trusting him and obeying what he's already called you to do. 
See, some of us on a one to 10, we want steps eight, nine, and 10. And Jesus goes, well, how could I entrust you with steps eight, nine, and 10? You hadn't done two yet. Could you imagine if this man said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go. You have to come with me. And Jesus is going, all you got to do is go and he'll be healed. What if he disobeyed? What would happen then? But he didn't. He trusted and obeyed. And what he found was that his son was healed. See, this is the kind of heart posture. And this is the kind of attitude and the kind of person that Jesus responds to. Someone who's seeking him. Someone who is asking him. And someone who is trusting and obeying him. Okay, so we've dealt with the difficulty in the text. We've talked about the official. Let's talk quickly about Jesus. Uh, I don't know about you and those of you in the room that are married. I'm married and most of my fights in my marriage come from the fact that uh, I'm right and Amy's often wrong. Um, It also comes from stupid stuff I say in sermons. And so there will be another fight this afternoon. But... um, (laughs) Really what, what most of my fights come from is, is, is mismatched expectations. Amy expects that I'm home at five and I get home at six. Amy expects that I make dinner and she's wrong. Um, Amy, you know, or I expect that she will do something and our expectations are not matched. I, I would venture to guess that for most of you, the struggle that you have with God and even with Jesus, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, is that your expectations don't match. Because sometimes we come to Jesus and what we need or want from him is for him to help us to pass this test that we didn't study for or to fix our financial life. And all the while, Jesus has a different goal. What's Jesus' goal? Look up here on the screen. It's, oh, sorry, go back one, two, two slides, one, two slides. There you go. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not, what? Believe. What's Jesus' goal? Believe. That's right. That's right. His goal is not signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are are the avenue towards the end game. So for this man, this official that's gone to Jesus, what's his end game? Heal my kid. But the reality is Jesus all the time, all he wants him to do is believe. And so he heals his child. And subsequently, look what happens. The father knew that the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself did what? Believe. See, that's Jesus' goal the whole time. Jesus' goal for you is the same, that you would actively trust him that you would place your active trust in him. Jesus' goal for me is that I would actively trust him. It's not that he would fix my life. It's not that he would do a trick. It's not that he would cause five loaves and two fish to become enough to feed five, eight, 10,000 people. It's not that he would turn all my water into wine. Jesus' goal is that I would actively trust him, seek him, ask him, trust and obey him, walk with him, be in a relationship with him, be a, friend, be a friend to him. And some of us go to Jesus as if he's like this cosmic genie and we ask him to like wave a magic wand and fix stuff. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, pow, your life's fixed. And all the time he's going, look, our expectations don't match, friend. Your goal might be that I would do tricks for you and fix stuff, and I will sometimes. Not tricks, you know what I mean. Bless you. But, but those, are just, those are just an avenue towards the end game. And what's the end game? that you would believe in him just as this official eventually does. Because, not, of what, not because of what Jesus did now, but because of who he is. The Bible says that this was the second sign that Jesus did. And as we continue our study in the book of John, we'll see him continue to do more signs and wonders so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. Let's pray together.
God, I am grateful for this day that we set aside to honor moms. Uh, I especially think of my mom today, Sandy, and the ways that she um, uh, raised Gabe and, and me and Lacey so well, the ways that she modeled trust and obedience, the ways that she modeled seeking you and asking you, not just uh, teaching us how to do that, but modeling that for us. God, we are grateful for the gift that we have in mothers and in the women in our life. Uh, for so many of us that, that come uh, to Toronto from all over the world, even surrogate mothers, people that have been kind of a stand-in mom for us and have given us what we need in terms of just that female leadership in our life. Um, thank you for those women. God, would you teach us to be the kind of people that posture our hearts towards you like this official did, understanding that we don't have to be perfect to come to you, but we do have to come to you. We don't have to have perfect faith, but what faith we have, we have to bring it to you. Seek you, ask you for what we need, and then trust and obey that you've got our best interest at heart and that your end goal is leading us towards belief. Teach us, God, to trust you actively each and every day. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. Hey, let's stand and respond as we continue to worship through song.